0: Now from the Milken Institute, Responding to COVID-19, Conversations with Mike Milken.
1: The efficacy of these vaccines is spectacular, it's 95%, and remarkably, these two vaccines developed in different companies, two different continents, give incredibly similar results, which is enhancing the likelihood that these data are absolutely real. That's Mansaf
0: Slawi. He's the head of Operation Warp Speed, our government's public-private partnership that has so far produced two highly effective COVID-19 vaccines. It is a career-defining moment for the Moroccan-born Slawi, who previously worked on treatments for the H1N1, Ebola, and Zika viruses at GlaxoSmithKline. He spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman, Mike Milken. I want to thank you for joining us, and we want to thank you for taking the job as the head of Operation Warp Speed. Tell us a little bit about why you took this assignment.
1: I spent all of my professional career at GlaxoSmithKline and half of that I was a scientist and then the head of R&D for the vaccine division of the company and had the fortune and privilege to discover and develop a large number of vaccines. Therefore, acquired very significant experience when I became head of R&D for the, the corporation as a whole. I remained chairman of the vaccine division. It's what I love. And I have participated to the company's commitment to helping with pandemics in three successive events, unfortunately, which were the flu H1N1 pandemic in 2009 and then the Ebola outbreak where I let go everything I was doing and put together a team of hundred people and led them to uh, make a vaccine in seven months, to clinical trials, not to approval. And then Zika. So I was always committed to public health and global health from a vaccine perspective. But I was also very frustrated with the fact that each time we were not prepared to tackle a pandemic. And in fact, I made a proposal to the US government and others that I called the Biopreparedness Organization proposal to have a permanent organization dedicated to discovering, developing, and manufacturing small quantities of vaccine against known potential outbreak and, and pandemic agents. was never funded. But this is something that was very high on my agenda, and many people knew this was very important to me. So I got a call out of the blue late in April from Jim Greenwood, who, Uh, used to be the CEO of the bio organization, and he was a congressman before, literally picking my brain about whether having something that looks like the Manhattan Project could make sense to have a vaccine very quickly against COVID-19. When I was called here to meet with the administration, I asked really for two things. One is full empowerment, and two is no political interference. And I was guaranteed that that would be the case, and that was it
0: as you've responded to your fourth pandemic. We have moved technology along here. Uh, We have been monitoring 214 vaccines at our Faster Cure Center, 30 that have gone into humans, but the approval of the Pfizer vaccine and the approval we anticipate of the Moderna vaccine. As you've moved this organization in the world at quote, warp speed, Can the citizens depend on these vaccines being safe?
1: Yes, to the best of the wealth of information that we have on these vaccines. And I'll explain why we went so fast and why we haven't actually cut any specific corners that are relevant to either the effectiveness or the safety of the vaccine. We really went fast because we used what we call platform technologies it's like taking a tape recorder and each time you put a different tape in it, you listen to a different music, but it's the same tape recorder. 99% is the same thing, only the tape is different. Platform technologies for vaccines are the same principle. If you take, for instance, messenger RNA, whether you have a vaccine against poliovirus or cytomegalovirus or COVID-19, 99% of the vaccine is the same thing the sequence that defines the antigen against which you vaccinate is the only thing that's different. That allowed us to capitalize on more than 10 years of research and development done at companies like Moderna, like CureVac, like BioNTech, which has the partnership with Pfizer for the Pfizer vaccine, to really work out how to design these vaccines, their toxicology and safety in animals, took them into the clinic with, in the case of Moderna, as you know, I was on the board of Moderna and I'm very familiar with the work they've done in more than seven different diseases to understand the kind of immune response it induces. So when COVID-19 came, the minute we had the sequence, the tape, we could plug it into the tape recorder or the messenger RNA platform and very quickly, within 60 days, be in clinical trials in humans. It wasn't shortcutting the process. It was actually, the process had taken place for 10 years before that. And we understood exactly, and so did the FDA, what was being done. The second thing that we've done is in contrast to what happens normally, which is you go step by step in sequence in organizing your phase one trials and then phase two and then phase three. And then you invest in your manufacturing What we've done is that we planned the clinical trials in parallel. We didn't run them in parallel. What that allowed us is as soon as phase one was completed, we could start phase two the next day. Completed meant the FDA agreed this was safe. Likewise, with the phase three trial, we run them much larger than what's needed. Usually the minimum requirement by the FDA for a new vaccine is 6,000 subjects. Our trials have between 30,000 and 60,000 subjects. There were two reasons for that. One was it allows to accrue cases into the trial much faster than if you have a small number of people in the trial. So, actually, if the, tr- the trial is bigger, it actually ends up faster in terms of achieving the endpoint for efficacy. And of course, the second point is we have experience on 15 or 30,000 subjects vaccinated over a period of, on average, four to five months, which is very important to describe at least the short and mid-term safety of these vaccines. The data are frankly compelling. I mean, the efficacy of these vaccines is spectacular. It's 95%. The efficacy is already achieved after one dose of the vaccine. The efficacy is 100% against severe disease. The efficacy is the same whether you are an African American or a Hispanic or over 65 years old which are or people with comorbidities and remarkably these two vaccines developed in different companies two different continents give incredibly similar results totally independently which is also enhancing the likelihood that this data are absolutely real and likewise on the safety there are side effects that are associated with the injection site which is totally classic with many vaccines some pain at the injection site some redness uh, some chills a little bit of fever they last a day or 36 hours and they are really noticeable maybe in 10 or 15 percent of the subjects vaccinated in these trials there were no serious adverse events of any specific nature Trials were never put on hold. As you know, the data safety monitoring boards, which independently oversee the trials, have put on hold another vaccine trial by AstraZeneca using a different technology. But these two trials were never put on hold. They never had any event of any specific nature. Uh, And therefore we feel confident and comfortable that their short and midterm safety is very clear and very well understood. Now, there is one thing that's not described yet, which is their very long-term safety. We don't know whether these vaccines could have a side effect of some nature, by definition, rare in the very long term. However, what we know is that in hundreds of thousands of subjects data from people over the last 40 years that participated in clinical trials for vaccines in the FDA databases, 95% of all adverse events associated with vaccines over all the follow-up time, on average two years in vaccine development, occur in the 40 days following completion of vaccination. So we feel that uh, we know those 95%, there is almost nothing serious at all in these trials. And therefore, we can project that their long-term safety is very likely to be similar to that of all other approved vaccines. I will take the vaccine, and as soon as it will be approved for pediatric use, I'll give it even to my young child, of course. Your young eight-year-old son? My young eight-year-old self. You've just spoken about
0: the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, and what about the other vaccines? Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca, the biotech company in China, sinovax that's been used in Indonesia, the UAE, and many other countries. What about the other vaccines? Where do you see them in the process?
1: Hundreds of millions of doses will be manufactured on a monthly basis between these two vaccines. Those processes are closer to a chemical synthesis process than to a a pure biological process, which makes them more robust and predictable. The biggest challenge is access to certain raw materials, certain lipids that are very important in the formulation. And with the Department of Defense, we are working on ensuring appropriate access to those raw materials for both companies. I would say in the strategy that we designed for Operation Warp Speed, we decided on day one that we were not gonna bet on only one vaccine and not only one technology. We were gonna take four different platform technologies. And for each one of them, we wanted to have two vaccines because we wanted to hedge the risk of failure, the risks of delay, the risk of poor execution. And we are very pleased up to now that we have two vaccines from the fastest technology, which is the messenger RNA, The next two use another platform technology, which is the non-replicating vector vaccine, which are the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine and the J&J vaccine, are in phase three trial. The J&J vaccine here in the U.S. is being tested as a one-dose, one-shot, or a two-shot vaccine in two different trials. And the one-shot vaccine has already more than 35,000 subjects recruited in it. And the AstraZeneca vaccine trial in the US, which is different than the UK and Brazil trial that they have reported on with some potential mix-up, is also has recruited more than 17,000 subjects and is likely to read somewhere late January or early February. These two technologies are actually easier to scale up in very high uh, number of doses in terms of capacity than the messenger RNA technology And as of the month of February or March, we will be producing between 150 and 200 million doses per month. And remember, one of these two vaccines is a one shot. So when you have 100 million doses, that means 100 million people vaccinated. And then we have two protein vaccines, one from Novavax, the biotech company here in the Northeast, and um, one from Sanofi and VlaxoSmithKline partnership, which are in phase two trials preparing to enter in phase three They're likely to read out, I would say, in the early spring, most likely, and be available in April or May approved. And those can also produce hundreds of millions of those from each. I feel confident that we can cover the US population within the first half of 2021. I hope most people will accept to be vaccinated. And I feel confident that these technologies, which are being tech transferred already into other manufacturing facilities that these companies have elsewhere, will be produced into several hundreds of million in if not billion of doses already in the year 2021. If I sum them up all together, we probably will have two or three billion doses of vaccine. Morocco is starting a national vaccination program with 25 million doses of the uh, inactivated uh, virus vaccine. in in Indonesia you cited, I think that that technology is very likely to work. I would not give it to babies because of the historic observation in the early 1960s that RSV vaccine, another respiratory virus that was inactivated with formaldehyde has actually exacerbated disease in infants. So I wouldn't give it to young babies, but otherwise I think it's safe in broader populations they have a messenger RNA vaccine in China. I'm not familiar, frankly, with the technology. I haven't seen publications. And there is, of course, the adenovirus-based vaccine from Russia, which is well-advanced. Uh, again, I haven't seen clinical trials. I'm very connected with SEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation. Some of the companies we're supporting are also supported by SEPI. We hope to find and identify immune correlates of protection that will help approve other vaccines that cannot be tested for FXC because it would be unethical to run a placebo control trial, for instance, in a country where vaccines are available.
0: There's two things you've brought up I'd like to touch on. One, children. Most trials have started with adults. Do you feel vaccines will be given to children when they're available?
1: These vaccines would need to run clinical trials in children. I know that they have been tested in children for other vaccines, for instance, like an RSV vaccine that's being developed by Moderna. But this very specific vaccine has been taken into adolescence, age 18 to 12, as part of the phase three trial that Pfizer has run. The Moderna vaccine has stopped at the age of 18. I think it was really an important and the right decision to not go into the below 18, as long as we didn't have an evidence of benefit once we have now evidence of benefit, we are planning as we speak to start imminently clinical trials into adolescents and then into toddlers and then into infants. You have to show you're safe in in each age bracket. Uh, I would expect adolescent immunization to be approved by the agency, maybe on the basis of the uh, Pfizer data that they already have, or maybe more likely in March when, when more trials have been conducted in adolescence, and I would expect to go lower in the ages. I hope to be approved before the, the start of the next academic year in the fall of 2021. What about the distribution?
0: How does it get out and what is the most effective way to do that?
1: One of the visionary aspects of the operation was to associate the academic and industry ecosystems with the Department of Defense and the Army logistics and project management and operational capabilities. And General Perna, the co-leader of the operation with me, is an outstanding leader that's providing incredible input in that regard. From day one, when we started, planning the distribution started to be thought through and all the steps analyzed. And one of the biggest decision that was made was to say, between 80 million, 120 million doses of vaccine are distributed every year in the US. And what we're talking about, maybe three times that number, maybe four times that number over a period of six months or something like that. We don't need to invent something different. What we need is expand and consolidate what is already used. Can we do it that way? And the answer is yes, and I think learning from the test and the fact that no system existed to distribute the test all the way to every CVS or Walgreens or whatever place, turned out to be an incredible challenge because you had to establish the routes. Here, the warehouses are there, the distribution companies are there. Really the biggest challenge is the cold chain and is of course a higher challenge with the uh, Pfizer vaccine that requires minus 80 as compared to, the Moderna that requires a minus 20 cold chain. But even then the work was to say, okay, how can we make that cold chain a challenge that is contained? Pfizer were very creative in designing packaging system that allows for two weeks stability at minus 80 with dry ice, renewable at least once. And both Moderna and Pfizer demonstrating or measuring and, and, and showing Stability of their vaccines at two to eight degrees at the fridge temperature for five days for the Pfizer vaccine and a month for the Moderna vaccine. Why is that important? Because that the last step of vaccinating people, once you took the virus outside of the minus 20 or minus 80 cold chain, it was very important that the level of flexibility exists. We have rehearsed every aspect of this. First, in tabletop exercises, conceptual, to make sure nothing fell between the cracks. And every time we did it, new things were improved, but also more recently in mock distribution of vaccines. I'm pretty sure there will be hiccups. I hope the hiccups will be 1% and the perfect will be 99% of the time.
0: So let's talk about preparation. You spend considerable time trying to convince the world of the need for having manufacturing capacity and other things in place if we had a pandemic. The creation of these new RNA vaccines with the potential that they might be used in this technology for many, many different things in the future. What do we need to know going forward?
1: This partnership between public and private in a way that was unencumbered by bureaucracy. It's super important. The system knows it can't do it, so that's one. The second, I would say, is incredible level of alignment. Really, I have never seen as fast decision-making on all aspects, and it was amazing. I could call Albert literally many times. He was somewhere in Greece at five or four in the morning. I wake up very early in the morning, and we would discuss something, and Albert would call the teams in Pfizer and things are aligned, and we didn't have to go through 10,000 discussions. It was immediate. I think the other thing is redundancy as a mean to manage risk. is very important. We need to really be careful not to think that now we know what to do. Therefore, next time, we're going to take just one approach because for the next pathogen, unfortunately, it may require something else. I think the one thing that is more difficult is nobody has an idle manufacturing site waiting for the next pandemic. These manufacturing sites were being used for something else or have just been built for scratch. We worked incredibly thanks to the Department of Defense to enable access to accelerate, import, authorize, engineers, you name it, anything to build manufacturing facilities from scratch. We did, but it's tough, it takes time. You need to validate them. You need to hire the people and train them. That takes time. We could have gone faster if there were dedicated manufacturing facilities for this. Have a nucleus of a permanent facility to discover, develop and manufacture. And then if there is a crisis, you can overlay that with a very strong partnership between Department of Defense, I completely changed my perspective on the Army. It's all about leadership. It's absolutely exactly like in industry. And make sure we create that integrated partnership next to a permanent facility. I think that would be my way forward. We are bleeding 20 billion a day. Let's spend 300 million a year when we don't have a pandemic. Let's be preventative. When you
0: talk about leadership, how fortunate the world was that you answered that call to lead our efforts during this period of time. Thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to people in the United States joining the UK and others around the world in taking the vaccine. Thank you. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.